Thank you, Don, for filling in. We really appreciate your willingness to step up and direct our congregation in worship. Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And You know, I have to agree with Gary a little bit. When I first read this passage, I said, Lord, what do I do with this? And then as you study it and think about what Paul is saying here, what he's doing, it becomes evident that there is such a deep truth in what is being shared here. And what Paul is doing is taking an Old Testament event and using it as an illustration of spiritual truth right here, right now, in the current day. And that's what we want to see as we look at this text. Really what he's doing is taking a story that would have been familiar to his readers and he's building off of that an illustration that helps us understand that we're to live not according to human effort, but according to the Spirit of God. And as we go through this text, hopefully, we'll be able to draw those truths out of this. Now let's begin this morning by looking at the 21st verse. And as we look at this first section, verses 21 through 23, we see the introduction of this story. And we see that Paul wants us to understand some truths about spiritual birth. The first truth that we need to understand that we'll see in verses 21 through 23 is this. Spiritual birth comes from God, never man. You cannot make yourself born spiritually. It's a work of God and it's brought out by this illustration that we find here in this text. So let's look at it. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Now, as Paul begins this, he's going to talk about natural birth and how that doesn't make us right with God, how it doesn't ensure that we're a part of the seed of Abraham, the line of promise. And in so doing, notice he begins by challenging the people who are seeking to be justified by the law. These are the people who say, I can be good enough, I can do enough things contained in the law to gain God's favor. I can live a righteous enough life to where God must accept me. And so what Paul is doing is he's challenging them, and then he's challenging some of those who had become, become confused in the Galatian church, who were starting to buy in to that teaching. And what he's saying to them is, you need to rethink your position. And here's why. He says that we can go back into the Old Testament, which would have been the favorite part of those who were coming in, trying to draw the Christian church back into the law. He says, we can go into that law that you love so much, and we can find an illustration that shows us that there's no way by human effort we can accomplish the purpose of God. There's no way by human effort that we can achieve righteousness before God. There's no way by human effort that we can become the sons of promise that he's been talking about for two or three chapters. So, let's think about this. Here in verse 21, he says, we're going back to the law. Now, some of you might look and say, now wait a minute, the teachings concerning Abraham. We're in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis doesn't really talk about the law. The book of Exodus does. So why did Paul call going back to Genesis, going back to the law? Simple word of explanation. The Jewish Bible is divided 
in Jewish teachings to where the first five books of the Old Testament are considered the law. It's the background that leads up to the law. So they see it as a whole. So what he's doing is he's building his case by what the law says. And then as we come to verse 22, what do we find? It says, For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of promise. Now, in order for this to make sense, we've got to backtrack. We have to review the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Ishmael. So let me give you the Reader's Digest version. When we go into the Old Testament, many of the chapters in the Old Testament address this. We begin with Abraham being in what is modern-day Iraq and God calling him out of that region to go to the promised land. Abraham was called of God. He responded by faith. He acted on it. And when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. And when it was credited to him as righteousness, God gave him an unconditional promise. The promise was that Abraham would be blessed And that through him, there would be many generations, many people. Part of his inheritance was the land, but part of his inheritance was the promise of God that through him, he would bless all nations. So this was a part of the promise that God had given him. Now, Abraham and Sarah took God at his word. They tried for years to produce a baby, but Sarah was barren. During some of their travels, they went down to Egypt. While they were in Egypt, they picked up a handmaiden named Hagar. Hagar went with Sarah and Abraham back to the promised land. And so Sarah came up with an idea. We need a surrogate mother. So what we're going to do, Abraham, you lay with the handmaiden. You have a child. And in this way, God will produce what he has promised. Now, here's a quick little lesson from this. God does not need our help. When God makes a promise, He's perfectly capable of fulfilling that promise. And really, what ensues after Abraham and Sarah come up with a solution by sleeping with Hagar, Abraham would produce what God had promised. Nothing but disaster since. There has been a rift between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac ever since. But they made that pact, they made that solution, and for 13 years it appeared as though that had to be the solution to their problems. Ishmael grows, and then, lo and behold, what happens? God sends messengers to Abraham, promises to open Sarah's womb. Now here's the unusual thing. When God made this promise, it was a promise that came as a miracle. And here's why. Sarah was not only barren, but she had been barren to the point of being past the time to where she could have children. She was well past the age to where she should have or could have produced a child. 
God intervenes. Not only does he intervene by opening her womb, which had been barren, but also by doing it at a time to where people would have to say, there's no way that this happened humanly. It had to be the intervention of God. And that's exactly what God does. God gives them Isaac. And that, in a nutshell, is the story that we find here in Galatians as Paul draws some insights from it. Now, let's go back to the 22nd verse with that context in mind. And let's look at what he says in verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, these two sons would be Ishmael and Isaac. And notice he draws a comparison between these sons. One by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. Isaac by the free woman Sarah, Ishmael by the slave woman Hagar. And it says this in verse 23, His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of promise. So what is Paul beginning to illustrate by the story from the Old Testament? What he's illustrating is this. Hagar and Ishmael represent human effort. Stepping in and saying, I have to accomplish this for God. God never told them to do that. He never sanctioned it. He never blessed it. Now, he blessed Hagar and Ishmael by protection and by seeing to it that they survived. But God never told Abraham and Sarah to do that. It was them stepping outside what God had promised and freelancing, going off on their own to accomplish what they had hoped God would accomplish. And as a result... Neither Hagar nor Ishmael were in the line of promise. Now, here's the interesting part. Both Ishmael and Isaac were the offspring of Abraham. But only one of them was the son of promise, and that's Isaac. And so what Paul begins to illustrate to the Galatians is this truth. Just because you're a descendant doesn't mean that you're in the place that God wants you to be. Ishmael was a descendant, but he wasn't of the line of promise. These people who are coming in and claiming that they have a special connection with God because they're descendants of Abraham, the people who are coming in and saying, observe the law, become like us, they were not people of promise just by virtue of being naturally born a Jew. You see, unless they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, unless they trusted in Christ as the Messiah who was given by God, they would never become a part of the seed of Abraham as Paul describes it here in the book of Galatians. The only way we become a part of the seed of Abraham now is by faith. When we trust God, we are adopted as adult sons, we're told earlier in the book of Galatians. So, what's the message? Don't think that you have a connection with God by virtue of your natural birth. 
Ishmael had natural birth, and he did not have the connection. It was the one who was born of promise and of faith. It was the one who was born by the very hand of God that God would bless and that God would use. And you know that's true of our spiritual birth as well. Look, as you try to perform the law, you cannot help God out in your salvation. God is perfectly capable of saving you. God is perfectly capable of bringing you into righteousness and the right relationship with Him. He doesn't need your personal performance to somehow augment it. God accomplishes it by His grace, meaning that God gives us His salvation on the basis of His promise. Faith is that arm that reaches out and receives that to ourselves so that we have a relationship with God. When we try to add our two cents to it, we mess things up. Just like Abraham and Sarah messed things up with Hagar and Ishmael. So that's the first part of this illustration. And you know, let's bring it home today. There are those who think, I was raised in a Christian home. I was born into a particular church. And because of my connection, God has to give me a relationship with Him. He has no choice. Not true. Natural birth accounts for this physical presence. But it doesn't account for spiritual life or promise from God. Until by faith you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you do not have that connection with God. You are not a part of the seed of promise. That only comes through faith. And so that's the first point that Paul wants to make here. You see, spiritual birth is the only way that we become right with God. When we look at this text, we see that Isaac, Ishmael, these were individuals who were born quite differently. Look at verse 23 once again. His son, by the slave woman, was born in the ordinary way. What it's saying there is this. When Ishmael was born... There was the normal natural process. I won't go into details. You understand the process. It wasn't something that God had to intervene. It happened the ordinary way of a man and a woman coming together physically. And so Ishmael was produced. It was an ordinary thing. But then look at the last part of the 23rd verse. But his son by the free woman, Sarah was born as a result of promise. It was the very Word of God, the promise of God, that brought about Isaac's birth. God stepping outside the ordinary and bringing about the supernatural. It was God's supernatural intervention that brought about life. I love the way the writer of Hebrews phrases this. 
By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And I I love the 12th verse. It kind of cracks me up. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, (laughs) came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. It was God intervening and responding to faith. Not the works of Abraham, but the faith of Abraham. And that's the contrast that is drawn in this text. It's picturing for us radical differences. If you want to be a part of the seed of Abraham, as we have seen, then you come by faith, not by your works. Then we move into the next part of the text. Spiritual birth comes from faith, never the law. And what we begin to see as we look at Paul developing this text and this story is a point that he makes. Human effort only puts us into bondage. Now look at what he says in verse 24. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. Now, let me pause for just a moment and rabbit trail for a moment. Here in the 24th verse, when it says these things may be taken figuratively, some of your translations might even say allegorically. The uh, original Greek uses the word allegory, but here's the problem. Sometimes when we think of an allegory, here's what we think of. It's something that didn't really happen. It was something that was a myth that was told to give a moral teaching. That is not the way Paul is using this in this text. What he's saying is, this is an event that actually happened. He's not questioning the historical fact of what went on with Sarah, Abraham, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael. What he's saying is, from this well-known event, there is illustration of spiritual truth. And so I'm giving you an illustration to help you understand what actually happened. So let's look at this illustration. The women represent two covenants. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant, very simply, is a contract, a promise that's made between God and man. What we find is this. The covenant that God had made with Abraham is represented by Sarah. The covenant that God made on Mount Sinai, where the law was given, is represented by Hagar. And what he begins to share with us is teaching concerning the bondage that people felt being under the covenant of the law. So let's look at this verse. Verse 24 says, This may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. Now, what Paul is saying is this. If you go to the law and you count on the law to bring about your righteousness, guess what? You're enslaved by it. If that is going to be your route to going to God, then every single stipulation of the law applies to you. You must hit it 100%. 
not veering off course one little bit, if you're saying, I can be righteousness, righteous enough for God to accept me, then you'd better be so. You're enslaved to it. There's no grace. There's no deliverance. It's hold it to the letter or be condemned by it. That's the rules of the law. And so what he's saying here is this. Just as the children who were born to Hagar were born into slavery, the people who seek to be born by the law, Mount Sinai, are born into slavery as well. Only death comes from Mount Sinai. Now, I want you to think about why Paul would say Mount Sinai. When you go into the Old Testament, Mount Sinai is described as an awesome place, a place of God's presence, a place where the law is given, but it's also a kind of scary place. Suppose you were out hiking during the giving of the law, and you decided, hey, I'm going to do a little hiking on Mount Sinai. Guess what? One step and you're done. Plop. You're struck dead. God gave the command that any animal, any person who wanders onto Mount Sinai during the giving of the law, death. You're done. So Sinai itself was a place of austerity, a place of, 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 of death, a place of fear. And what he's saying is this, that those who seek to be justified by the law are putting themselves under that system, the system of death. Verse 25 goes on to say this. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Now, when we read this, Sinai, Jerusalem, okay, you know, whatever. But here's the problem. What he's saying here is this. Just as Sinai was a place of slavery, in Paul's day, Jerusalem had become a place of slavery. Now, there was the obvious slavery of the Roman government over Jerusalem, but that's not what he's talking about. You know what he's talking about? Slavery to a system. The people of Jerusalem during his day were enslaved to a system of the law. And therefore, since they were enslaved to the system of the law, there was no hope of release. They were entrapped by that system. And anyone around them who subscribed to it was entrapped by that system. And so... There was the slavery and death that's pictured for us by Mount Sinai and the present-day Jerusalem. Because look at the last part of that 25th verse. Because she is in slavery with her children. They were enslaved to this concept of the law. Now, remember in John chapter 8 where Jesus had an interaction with the Pharisees? In John chapter 8, Jesus talked about slavery and he made the statement that many of you I know remember from John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus, of course, was referring to himself, the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who brings spiritual freedom. And remember the response of the Pharisees after Jesus said that? What are you talking about? We're not enslaved to anybody. And remember Jesus' response. 
Yes, you're enslaved to your father, the devil. You have not been set free by knowing the truth. Anyone who does not come to God through Jesus Christ, but seeking to come to God through their own efforts, is in slavery. Slavery to the law. Slavery to their own sin. They have not been set free by the freedom that Jesus Christ gives. And that's something that we need to understand and that Paul wanted his readers to understand. But then we move then to the 26th verse. Physical Jerusalem, a place that had bought into a system that held them captive. But then in verse 26, he begins to describe a different Jerusalem. And notice he says this. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Now that brings us to this point. Spiritual change brings freedom and hope. I want you to think for a moment about what this Jerusalem that is above is. What in the world is he talking about, a Jerusalem that is above? When we go to the book of Revelation, it's described for us. Notice it says this in Revelation 21.2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. This, is, this will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. So, what is the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem is a holy city described for us in the Word of God that is now a part of the heavenly realm. And all of the faithful, all of those who have placed their personal faith in Jesus Christ, are residents of this city. Now here's the thing. You cannot get to the New Jerusalem by human effort. Remember that song, you can't get to heaven in a rocking chair, roller skates, all of that stuff? <laughs> That's the principle. You can't build a rocket ship to get there. You can't, through human effort, say, hmm, I think I'll set the GPS to the New Jerusalem. You can't get there that way. How are you a part of the New Jerusalem? By faith. And that faith gives us freedom from the condemnation of the law, that faith gives us entrance into the new Jerusalem that is promised for the faithful of all ages. That's Paul's point in this passage. It's free. We are children of promise through Sarah and Abraham and the line of promise who would eventually produce the Messiah. And it's through that Messiah that we have that freedom. And then, look at verse 27. Verse 27 is a quotation from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 54. And what this passage is talking about that he's quoting is prior to the Babylonians coming into Jerusalem and clearing them out and taking them back to Babylon, there was a promise in Isaiah 54 that God would once again deliver the children of Israel. Here he says, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. 
because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. What he's saying is this. The promise of God is greater through him intervening and producing children through the woman of promise, Sarah, than through the woman who produced naturally, Hagar. That's the difference. And here's the real promise. The blessing of all of this comes into fruition when the seed, the Messiah, comes, setting us free, giving us deliverance, sharing that new Jerusalem with us. It's a wonderful promise and a wonderful passage. Third and final point. Spiritual birth is wonderful. It comes through faith. It comes from God. But it doesn't come without cost. As Paul was talking to the Galatians, he said, expect persecution. Spiritual birth brings persecution from those who live by human effort. Man, when you talk about grace, you talk about the fact that we don't get to heaven by our own efforts. It's only by the grace of God. Isn't it amazing the response that you get from people? Some of them just look and say, you're crazy. Just kind of blow you off. Some people look at you and say, you're evil. Because you're making it too easy. Other people say, you're messing with my system here. And I don't like the fact that people are following the system of grace rather than the system of the law. And they become downright nasty. In continuing the story of Isaac and Ishmael, look at verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At the time... The son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Now, do you notice the insight that we get into Isaac's birth? What produced Isaac? The power of the Spirit. It wasn't human effort. It was the Spirit of God who produced his birth. And what Paul is bringing out is this. Just as with Ishmael... And Isaac, there became a rift. So with those who insist on holding on to the law, and those who believe in the way of the Spirit, the way of grace, the way of faith, there will be a separation. See, back in Genesis, Moses shares with us, the child grew and he was weaned. Now this is speaking of Isaac. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. There was a rift. Now, we could look at this and say, ah, it was sibling rivalry. You know, the prince has a new person in his home and he's not liking it. I don't care. You psychoanalyze it all you want to. That's fine. But here's the point that Paul's bringing out. There was... Resistance and resentment because Isaac was a child of promise, born supernaturally of God, not of human effort. And what he's saying to the Galatians is this. 
expect the same. If somebody's saying, I have a relationship with God because of what I do, because of all of the efforts that I put into it, that's what gives me that relationship with God. They're going to resent someone who's coming and saying, you know, that's not necessary. God saves us by His grace. Faith receives it. And it's not we who do things to change ourselves. It's once we trust God as our Savior, He transforms us. He changes us. It's not me doing enough for God to say, okay, now you're acceptable. It's me coming and saying, I'm helpless. I can't be good enough. Change me and make me the person you want me to be. That's when we have that relationship with God. But the people who work at it and want to retain that system, resentment and even persecution. Isn't it interesting? When you look at so many of the world religions, what do you find? A lot of commonality. They all stress, do this, don't do this, and God or the gods will accept you. Some of them require tormenting yourself, beating yourself, physically harming yourself, believing that as you suffer, God is more pleased. What we find in the Scripture is this. Jesus Christ suffered. And that's what pleased God to forgive us. That's what brought God to the place of saying, your sin debt is paid in full, satisfied. I am well pleased in my Son and the sacrifice that He made. That's what makes us right with God. And that's what this text is helping us to understand. But don't expect people to come alongside you and say, that's wonderful. Now, as far as the church, look at the last part of this, verse 30. What does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers... We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, what does the last part mean? Go back to the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. Guess what Sarah did when she saw Ishmael making fun of Isaac? She went to Abraham. And she said, I'm having none of this. I'm not going to allow him to bully and intimidate the son that God has given us. So put her out of the camp along with her son. Now when we look at this as far as the purpose of illustration, what Paul is bringing out is something important to understand here in regard to false teaching and the church. If you have a person who's engaging in false teaching, saying that you have to earn your way to a relationship with God, what's the biblical solution? You don't go to them 
and try and reform them. Yes, you might go and show them the error of the ways, but if they're insistent on it and they're insistent on bringing disciples after them to follow in that false teaching, you know what the Bible says you're to do? Not allow them to perpetuate that false teaching within the church. Now, let me be very clear here, okay? This does not mean that a person who does not believe in Jesus Christ is not welcome in the church. We, we love them. We want to reach out to them. We want to share God's word with them. But when a person comes in whose sole mission is to transform the church and to bring it under the slavery of a belief system that says it's what you do that gives you a relationship with God, then you have to think about the church body and protection of the church. One of the responsibilities of the elders of our church is to see to it that the doctrines of the Word of God are upheld. It's a serious responsibility. If somebody were to come here and start a Bible study and say, forget about coming to God through Jesus Christ... You can pray that prayer and receive Christ as your Savior if you want to, but what really counts is doing these things. The elders would be remiss in not stopping that Bible study, trying to reach out to the false teacher, but also understanding that if they are dead set on teaching that doctrine, they have no place in the church body. It's not a case where they're looking and they're saying we're being exclusionary. It's a case where they're looking and they're saying we're being protective so that people will not become confused and fall into this false teaching. And this is what God wanted the Galatians to understand. They had to rid themselves of the false teachers. Stop dancing around. Stop looking the other way. Understand that there is no other gospel than the gospel that you were given. Galatians 1.8. There's only the one gospel. Now, let me also be clear on this. There are some doctrines that as believers are non-essential to the faith, and we can differ on them. It doesn't mean that a pastor walks in and says, it's my way or the highway. If you don't believe every single thing that I believe then hit the bricks. But in the essentials of the faith, we need to hold to them, protect them, and protect the church body as well. And so this is what Paul was calling the Galatians to do. In another passage, he said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You know what leaven is? It's yeast. You ever taken just a little piece of Dough that has yeast in it and mixed it with dough that doesn't have any yeast? Guess what happens? The whole lump of dough starts to raise. That's how they make sourdough bread. When I went to San Francisco with Don Nelson one time, there was a store there that said they had the same dough from 1800s. And I thought, ugh. (laughs) Tasted like it too. No, not really. Not the case. It was a little lump of dough that they would take and move and move and move. And through the years, that same lump of dough 
It must have leavened thousands <laughs> and thousands of loaves of bread. God wants us to understand that we need to protect the church body. It's our responsibility. So this morning, what have we seen? We've seen spiritual birth comes from God. We've seen spiritual birth comes through faith. And we have also seen that when we come to God by faith, there will be those who oppose. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Stand firm in the truth that we come to God through grace by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. We thank you for the clarity with which it was written, with which we can grow. And God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, identify the things that maybe we're doing by the flesh, trying to help you out and get them out of our lives and understand that we are to yield to you, Lord, follow your lead, follow your direction. And yes, sometimes that even means wait on you. So we place all of this before you in Jesus' name. Amen.